Coming this morning to the last in the series on 2 Corinthians. I went back and looked at when I preached the first sermon. It was uh, 17 months ago. <laughs> so we've been for a year and five months in 2 Corinthians. Now we're coming to the last chapter, and I'm not breaking it up into four parts. It's one chapter as a whole. First, 2 Corinthians 13, the entire chapter. Uh, the, the story's told of... Um, a man who was rummaging through the kitchen drawer. We all have junk drawers in our kitchen. At least our house, we have always had one, right? Yes, we have. Uh, and I put things in there. And he was rummaging through the, dr the junk drawer, and he found uh, a ticket in there for uh, the local dry cleaners. Uh, it was a ticket for a suit that he had taken in like two years earlier to be cleaned. And uh, since he wasn't a suit-wearing kind of person, he had just kind of forgotten all about it till he came across the ticket. And so he asked his wife, do you think uh, the suit will still be there, will still be in the shop? I mean, it's been like two years, a little bit, two years plus. And she said, well, it's not likely it's still there, but uh, it's worth a try, she said. So uh, the man drove to uh, the dry cleaners, and uh, he just simply handed the ticket to the clerk, didn't say anything, just up to pick my item up and handed it to the clerk. And so the clerk said, well, just a minute, I'll have to go look for this and uh, disappeared in the back. And uh, after a, a couple of minutes, called out, here it is. And the man was surprised. He said, that's terrific. Who would have thought that it would have been here in uh, the shop after all this time? And the clerk said, well, just uh, to let you know, it'll be ready this next Thursday. <laughs> Isn't that how things work? Uh, my wife and I are sometimes frustrated with contractors. <clears throat> if any of you are contractors, don't take offense at this. Uh, you hire a contractor to work on a house. You never know when they're going to come. Uh, they come, they dump all their stuff, then they disappear. And then they come back who knows when. And you're never sure when the job's going to be done, those kinds of things. And, it, you know, it's time to get this thing done, and it never seems that on time things are ready, or at least there's a delay that's there. It's always good to be on time. It's good to be ready. It's good to be prepared. You think about if you invite somebody over to your house uh, for the evening, uh, you want to be ready. You want to have the house all vacuumed and clean and everything in order, and everything you need for the meal is there. Uh, it's time to get ready. People are coming over over in the evening. Well, Paul, as he closes out this letter, uh, makes it clear to the Corinthians he's making another visit to Corinth, and he hopes that everything will be ready when he comes. He hopes that everything will be in order and that the things that need to be done, especially the changes that need to be implemented there in the Corinthian congregation, that all of that will take place before he arrives so that everything will be ready for his visit. And Paul is concerned about that because there is still an unrepentant minority in the church in Corinth. Uh, and some of them are kind of bucking at his leadership. Some have rejected his leadership as an apostle. And, uh, and the issue for Paul was not that they had rejected him because, as he says earlier, I am in and of myself, I'm nothing. Not any different than anybody else. But I have a calling that's been given to me. And so when you stand against me as an apostle sent by Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're rebelling against God, and that's a serious matter. Paul says. Uh, maybe you remember the famous story in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 16. 
As, uh, the, as Numbers chapter 16 opens, we discover there is a rebellion in the camp by a small minority. And it was a rebellion against Moses' leadership. It was a rebellion against Aaron as the high priest of Israel. And it was led, the opening part of chapter 16 in Numbers tells us, by three Levites and gives their names, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were their names, and then along with 250 other prominent leaders. So you have a couple million people in the wilderness. Here you have this small group in rebellion and in opposition to Moses as God's appointed leader, as Aaron, as God's appointed high priest. Well, what to do? Let's look at the text. Numbers 16, verses 3, 4, and 5. And so this group of 250 plus three ringleaders... They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, Korah was kind of the ringleader of the three and plus the others, said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So the rest of the day unfolds, night comes, it's the next morning, it's time for a showdown. And so the three ringleaders of the rebellion, two of them didn't come directly, they finally come out of their tent and stand in the tent door, but Korah is there. And uh, the other 250 individuals who are part of this small rebellion are there. And they have priestly censers made out of bronze, incenses wafting skyward, burning incense. And the problem, as Moses, as he addresses them, he says, it's not about me. It's not about Aaron. Your opposition is not really to me. It's not to my brother Aaron. But verse 11, Moses says to the ringleaders, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. Well, to briefly summarize the story, the Lord orders Moses and Aaron and the, and the faithful priests who were in the majority, uh, in fact, the whole vast assembly of Israel, to distance themselves, literally, physically, from the group of rebels. So they're standing there, it's like, everybody step way back. And so they all do. Moses speaks a word of judgment against this group of rebels, and here's what happened. Verses 31 to 35. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. A rebellion against Moses' authority. So Paul is coming to Corinth. There is a rebellion against his authority. And so when he comes to Corinth, is there going to be some kind of a showdown 
or not? That's the question. And so with that question in mind, I want you to look at this last chapter of his letter, just under six very simple headings. And the first one is this, the apostle starts with a closing warning. Follow as I read verses 1 through 4. Paul says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. That sounds a little ominous, doesn't it? Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul says, when I come, I'm going to take action as strong as it needs to be in accordance with the word of God. And Paul says, if there are charges of wrongdoing, we'll have a hearing. And Paul says, every charge will be established, you notice verse 1, by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 set forth that principle in the law of Moses. Jesus reiterates that in Matthew chapter 18 when you deal with matters in the church. Let them be established at the word of two or three witnesses. And Paul says, when I come, I'm going to settle the matters at hand here in your congregation once for all. You now have ample warning This will be my third visit, and I will take whatever actions are necessary when I arrive. Certainly a word of warning. And what you discover here, you notice in verse 3, Paul says, since some of you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. All right, so are you really an apostle? Has Christ really sent you? Give us some proof. Well, Paul says, I'll bring you proof if I need to bring proof. You'll indeed have what you demand if that's what it comes to. But you notice in verse 4, Paul draws an analogy between himself and Christ. When Christ made his first visit to earth, how did he come? With his holy angels and power and great glory and flame and fire? No, he came in a manger. He came in lowliness. He came in humility and weakness. He was rebuffed by the religious leaders. He was persecuted. He was rejected. Eventually, he was beaten and put on a cross. Christ came in weakness when he made his first visit. And it culminated in his crucifixion, but that weakness was deliberate. That weakness was an act of grace. It was a voluntary laying down of his life for others. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, Jesus said on one occasion. And so when Christ made his first visit to planet Earth, this is my paraphrase of what Paul is saying here, when Christ made his first visit, he came in lowliness, simplicity, humility, gentleness, but that's not the end of the story. There was a resurrection, Paul says. And you notice in verse 4, Christ lives by the power of God. He ascended into heaven. And on his next visit, when he shows up again on planet Earth, he'll come very differently. He'll come with power and great glory, with a throne of judgment to judge the living and the dead, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. So Paul says, my first visit to Corinth and my second one were along the line of Jesus' first visit. I came in lowliness. 
I came in gentleness. I came in grace. I sought to live out the message of the cross. I came to serve you, not myself. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give my life as a ransom for many. And so Paul says, as I've made these previous two visits, I've come with gentleness and kindness and patience, even though there was hostility directed against me, and some of you did all you could to undermine my authority, all of those things. And so that was my first trip to Corinth, if you will. But don't forget, Paul says, that we also live not only in the cross, but we live in resurrection power. And so Paul says, although my previous visits were marked by lowliness and weakness, Paul says, if need be, and I hope it's not so, he says, but if need be, when I come again, it will be marked by resurrection power, my next visit. And I will deal with the situation as powerfully and strongly, yes, even with signs and wonders if need be. I will do whatever needs to be done to straighten things out in the congregation. My coming again will not be like when I came the first time. And so Paul speaks a word of warning. And secondly, then notice there's a closing challenge in verses 5 and 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So the context of this is Paul's opponents had challenged him, put him to the test. Are you really an apostle? Prove it. Show it to us. And Paul here turns the tables on them in these two verses. He challenges his enemies, indeed the entire congregation. No, don't examine me, examine yourselves, Paul says in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, Paul says. And you notice as verse 6 makes clear, Paul assumes that the answer to the challenge will be, why yes, we've experienced the grace of God. Why, yes, we've come to know and trust in Christ as our Savior. And the point Paul is making is, so how did that come about? How did you come to hear about Jesus? How did you come to the place of repentance? How did you know that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son? How did you learn any of that, that you're saved by grace through faith alone? How did you come to understand that and receive that for yourself? Oh, it's because I showed up, wasn't it? It's because I came to Corinth. And so Paul says to them here, so if you have come to faith, which I assume you're going to say yes to the, answer, to the question, and rightly so, examine yourselves, are you in the faith? The answer is going to be yes, I'm pretty sure of that. And so if you have come to faith and you have received the Holy Spirit as a result of my ministry, that's all the proof you need, that I've come with apostolic authority and apostolic power, and that Christ indeed speaks through me. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is to cast doubt on me as an apostle is to cast doubt on your own salvation, on your own conversion. Because you know, everything you know about Christ and the gospel and the word of God and all these things, you've come to know through me. So if I'm a fraud, if everything I've said to you is false, if I'm not legitimate, then your faith isn't legitimate either. You need to face up to that, Paul says. And so there is a closing challenge. You are all in the business of examining me. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And when the answer to that is yes, as indeed it is, 
then what does that mean then for you as a congregation? So there's a closing challenge. And that leads to then a closing prayer in verses 7 through 10. Let's notice what Paul prays. Verse 7, for we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul says, my prayer is, you notice in verse 7, is that you Corinthians will not do that which is wrong, Paul says, but do what is right, even though in the eyes of some it will seem then when I show up in Corinth as though I'm a failure. And you look at that and say, I don't get that. I don't see what Paul is, is driving at here. Here's the point. If, if you Corinthians, Paul says, take the right actions as a congregation and as leadership. If you take the right actions, if you deal in a biblical way with sinners who refuse to repent, uh, if you deal with the rebels in your midst who stand against my God-given authority, then when I show up in Corinth, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do signs and wonders or the earth open up and everybody disappear, whatever Moses did. I'll just be able to come and sit down with you and we'll have a time of fellowship and joy around the word of God as brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, but then you fail. There's no dramatic signs from heaven. Paul says that isn't the point about any of it. I'm not desirous of coming with signs, wonders, dramatic judgments. And so if I don't come with that, some will say, see, he has no power. See, he can do no signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul says, I don't care what people say. I don't care about my reputation. However I appear in the eyes of some of you, as long as you Corinthians do what is right and good in the sight of God, that's all I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about your restoration, verse 9. So if I come across as weak and not having any you know, mighty resurrection power, so be it. As long as things are right in the congregation, that's all I'm concerned about. And so Paul says, I'm praying for your restoration. And he says in verse 10, so that that's why I'm writing to you. So I don't have to be severe. So I don't have to take Moses-like action, if you will, when I come. I don't have to use my God-given authority to tear down that which doesn't belong. But that I can spend my time with you, building you up, encouraging you, um, guiding you in ministry, fellowshipping together in just a joyous, open-hearted way. And so Paul's prayer is, I pray that I might not have to use that severe apostolic authority, but that you might come to repentance and that there might be reconciliation and all things will be in order and be ready when I come for my final visit. Well, that leads then to number four. So there are some closing admonitions then. There are five of them in verse 11. And I, and I want you to notice what uh, Paul writes. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And then here's the promise, and the God of peace, of love and peace, will be with you. Begins with a call to rejoice, and you think about kind of the mess the congregation was in. What reason is there to rejoice? I mean, things aren't as they should be. But can you see what Paul is writing here is by way of anticipation. He expects that based upon receiving this letter, the leadership and the majority of the congregation will say, you know what, here's what we need to do. 
We need to do the right thing. And when that transpires, and when all things are in order, there will, will be a spirit of joy in the congregation. And so Paul is full of expectation. This is a word by faith that he's writing here. Rejoice. I anticipate that's going to be, there's going to be ample reason to do that. And so by faith, I'm already calling you to do that. You're on the verge of a joyous unity, Paul anticipates. So he says rejoice. Then he says aim for restoration. That's putting something back in place, mending something. Work at restoration, he says. Aim at it. Then he says comfort one another. Whenever there's a serious conflict in a congregation, and I have known this firsthand, several different places, relationships are always damaged. Sadly, it goes with the territory. And so when relationships are damaged, what is in order? Forgiveness is in order. Healing is needed in the hearts of some of those in the congregation. Paul is aware of the depth of hurt that's there in the church in Corinth. And Paul says, you need to take whatever steps you need to take to restore relationships and to bring comfort into the circumstances. Then you notice he says, agree with one another. Well, that's a tough thing. Um, if we were to take a poll on all kinds of things from A to Z, there would be all kinds of disagreement in this room on all kinds of things. So Paul isn't saying, figure out every little issue in life, whatever it might be, and be in lockstep. That's not what he's saying. But what he says is, agree on the main things using God's word as the standard. What is the way of salvation? Jesus, be in agreement on that. How are we saved? By grace through faith alone. Be in agreement on that. What is God's word? It is inspired, infallible, inerrant. Be in agreement on that. There is a literal heaven and a literal hell. There's only one way. Be in agreement on that. So on the main things, agree with one another. Be solid together on the fundamentals of the faith using God's word as your standard. And then he says, live in peace, the last of these five imperatives. Now, what I want you to understand is all five of these imperative verbs are in the present tense. And uh, whenever in uh, the Greek language there are verbs in the present tense, it always means continuous action, day after day. Some, it's not something you do once and then you set aside. Rejoice. Okay, I rejoiced yesterday. That's over and done with. No, continue to rejoice. Continue to in all these admonitions that he gives here. And I want you to think of these five. Really, I've thought about what Paul is really saying is, I want unity and oneness in the church. All these are just different ways of expressing the same thing. They're all kind of bundled together in one package. And so Paul says here that unity in a congregation is something that each of us must constantly and actively work at. Think about our church. Well, I don't know. We're unified, I guess, aren't we? Okay, if we're passive, bad things happen. There needs to be, even in congregations where there aren't big issues that are under the surface or beginning to tear people apart, unity has to be constantly worked at. It's like in a marriage. You know, if I said to Laura, I said I loved you like 40-some years ago, that should be good enough. You know, you have to work at it, 
right? A relationship you have to work at. So in a relationship of believers, you can't just let it slide and drift from week to week, month to month. There needs to be an active working at unity and oneness together in Christ. That's what Paul is getting at. And so you think of these five here, restoration, that takes work. Comfort, that takes work. You don't just put an arm around somebody and say, everything's be fine, I comforted him or her, we're good to go now. Comfort takes work. Coming to agreement with others sometimes takes work, doesn't it? Creating a culture of peace in a relationship or in a church, that takes work. Even the very first one, the call to rejoice, that takes work. When you don't feel like it, you're called to rejoice. Well, I don't feel like it, but that's the call. Find ways to rejoice in the Lord and what He has done. That takes work as well. And you notice the beautiful promise here that as we together as believers in Christ, seek to do our part in maintaining and and working toward uh, greater congregational health, what's the promise? You notice the God of love and peace will be with you. Boy, we need that, don't we? That 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 love and peace, the God who is marked by those things, that is his character through his Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. I mean, that's like at the beginning of the list. So those things, as we're filled with the Spirit of God, that God of peace, that God of love, those marvelous qualities that are imparted to us by his Holy Spirit, uh, those things will sustain us and enable us to work toward that unity and restoration and comfort and all those things that are needed. Well, then in verses 12 and 13, there are closing greetings that Paul gives. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. Well, let me just paraphrase. Paul says to to the Corinthians, demonstrate your unity. Demonstrate that you are family. Demonstrate your affection, the one for the other. And so, greeting one another, as was customary 2,000 years ago, greeting one another with a holy kiss, as Paul calls it, was to be an affirmation that all of them were one together in Christ. If Paul were writing in our day, writing us this letter, what would he say? When you walk in the west doors, warmly shake hands with everybody you meet. That's how Paul would put it in our day. And perhaps he would even say, as you walk in the west doors, those that you know are going through a tough time, embrace them, literally embrace them with warmth and love and concern and affection. That's how Paul would put it in our culture. And so what Paul's point here is, whatever your culture's custom is, acknowledge, receive, welcome into your heart others, brothers and sisters in Christ as family. And you notice here Paul even says all the saints greet you. Those he's with send their greeting. There's a oneness beyond the congregation. There's a oneness of all believers in Christ. And so Paul wants these Corinthians to realize it's not just you getting unified together in your little church, but together with all the saints, all the true followers of Jesus Christ. There is a greeting that comes from them. We're brothers and sisters together in the faith. And then there's finally a closing benediction. And this is the last verse of, uh, of this chapter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The order is a little surprising, isn't it? Because virtually every Sunday when I pronounce the benediction, whatever the benediction is, how do I conclude it? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How does this benediction go? In the name of the Son... In the name of the Father, 
in the name of the Holy Spirit. Why does Paul alter what is customary order? It's because how do we experience God in our lives? It starts with Jesus, doesn't it? The one who died for us, the one who rose again. How are we saved? It's through Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross, his perfect life, his atoning death, his blood that was shed. We receive that for ourselves. We come to know God, first of all, through Jesus Christ. And so Paul starts with that. And then we start asking the question, where did all this grace come from? Where's all this mercy from? Oh, God so loved the world. Yes, that's what it is. That he gave his one and only son. And so we start with the grace that we experience through Christ, and then we back up and say it's God in his love that sent the Savior. And as a consequence of experiencing Christ's grace and understanding something of God's love, then there is that fellowship together that the Holy Spirit creates. Fellowship with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Fellowship with other believers. One more thing I want you to notice is this benediction, maybe surprisingly, is for everybody in the church. Oh boy, you, might, you know, Paul might have wanted to leave some out. Some of the troublemakers, maybe. But you notice the benediction is for every last one of them. Notice what it says. The grace of Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What's the last word of the book? Be with you all. Be with you all, solid members, those strong in faith and service, those wavering, those who had been led astray, those who had been part of the trouble, maybe in days gone by, whoever it might be, God's grace and love and fellowship be with every last one of you. Because that's what they all needed. That's what we need as individuals in our lives. What is it that we need? We need grace. We need God's love. We need that fellowship with the Lord and then with others. And so that was the great need for the Corinthian congregation. That's our greatest need here in Botno, North Dakota. This would be Paul's desire for us, is that the grace of Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would fill our lives and then fill our assembly and our ministry and all things that we do together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul's desire for the Corinthians, it would be his desire for every congregation, for every individual reading this letter, is may that grace and love and fellowship be evident, be overflowing, be ever-growing in your personal life and in fellowship together as believers. May that be so. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, this has been uh, a long book of 2 Corinthians, a lot of things, oh, a tremendous book of Scripture. And to end on that final note, after going through all uh, the turmoil that Paul went through and the opponents that were uh, fighting him on every turn, it seemed like, the false teachers who showed up in Corinth, confusing many members of the church, all kinds of things, that when he gets to the bottom line, he can say to all of you, each one of you, wherever you've been in these last couple of years. My desire for you is grace and love and fellowship from the Son, from the Father, from the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that's what we need. We think about what do we need as a church? Well, we need uh, more money in the budget for this or that, or we need to, well, whatever it is. No, what we need is, first of all, our hearts and our relationships to be right. 
And Lord, when those things are right, and when those things are strong and growing and maturing, then these other things take their place. Then these other things are supplied by your mercy. And so, Lord, I I do pray for each of us personally as we think about these last three items in this text. Am I living in the grace of Christ? Is the love of God, my Heavenly Father, precious to me? Is there that fellowship with other saints, fellowship in the Holy Spirit? Is there a oneness? Is there a unity? What is my part in all of that? Am I standing by the sidelines? Am I passive? Or am I active in ministering in this congregation, doing what I can do to bring about joy and fellowship and oneness together as we live and serve your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so, Heavenly Father, grant that it would be so for each one of us. We ask these things for the glory and honor of your name. Amen.